everybody welcome to another episode of coffee and clarks i am your co-host javian and i'm your other co-host tyler and today as you can tell on the screen we have a very very really cool um guest with with us today uh it is Ryan Beach. He is the principal trumpet of the Alabama Symphony. Um, he's been there since, correct me if I'm wrong, 2014. That's right. Uh, <laughs> before that, he played in the Indianapolis uh, Symphony Orchestra and the Charlottesville Opera um, Festival. Just got fired from that. <laughs> They're going in a different direction, I guess. Oh, really? Well, we'll, we'll have to get into that. <laughs> we yeah. have to get into that. Yeah. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, and I and I, I remember um, you're a graduate of Northwestern University. If I remember, right. he, he studied with uh, Barbara Butler a while there. Um, he's performed as a soloist with uh, various orchestra across the world in Poland, uh, Malaysia, um, and 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 so forth and so forth. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So please welcome with us on the show. We're super excited to have Ryan Beach. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm excited. It's been a long while since I've done a podcast episode. So um, it's nice to be able to get to know you both and, and chat a little bit. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And I know you have your own podcast and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that a little later. Um, there's no competition here. We're, we're all about oh. promoting yeah, you know, for healthy sure. musicianship and um, it's going to be a good time. Um, but before we get in our, our questions for you, um, Tyler and I are big coffee heads, hence the title of the show. Um, so are you a coffee drinker at all or? Yeah, I didn't drink coffee. Um, is my mic loud enough? Oh, yeah, yeah. We hear okay, you. Cool. Cool. I thought I was like peeking in a second ago. Just anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't drink coffee until I became a parent. And then it was like, not that I was losing sleep. It's just I just started drinking coffee because I guess that's the thing you do. Um, I I do like coffee. I'm not like a I'm not crazy, but you know what I mean. I'm not like I'll drink kind of whatever is available. Generally speaking, um, right now we usually get our stuff from Costco because it's pretty good value. You know what I mean? Uh, I think I'm drinking the Starbucks Winter Blend right now. Nice. Um, but like I said, usually it's I I I'll wake up in the morning later than I want to usually. And then um, I'll work for a while. Like right now, we're not we're not at work, right? We we have a break uh, until New Year's Eve, and then we'll have a show. And so, um, when I have free time like this, I'll do like video projects, or obviously like practicing and stuff like that. And usually, I'll I'll wait like a long while before I eat, and so I'll have like two or three cups of coffee over the course of a couple of hours, um, and that's usually enough. And so it's become sort of like a, if you could call it a ritual or a habit or something like that, but Coffee seems to be a pretty uh, significant part of my day <laughs> these days. So, yeah, that's where I'm at, I guess. Fair enough. I support that. I support that. Uh, what about you, Tyler? What are you drinking today? So my brother's in town. He lives up in Nashville, so he brought a bag of beans from Nashville. It's called Eighth and Roast Coffee Company. And this one is from Ethiopia. And it, uh, as far as, like, the flavor notes, it's definitely fruity on the fruity side. So it's got a lot of blueberry in the flavor, which I do like. And then some of the other flavor notes are chocolate and lemon zest. Mm. But um, yeah, it's pretty good. I kind of preferred, I brought the Chemex and the V60 home, and I kind of prefer this one on the Chemex mm. versus the V60. Um, and then, yeah, and then I also have a bag from Bold Bean as well right now that I'm Classic. trying out. So I'm going back and forth. And then yesterday, I think I paired both of them together 
you know, just trying to like do different things, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Yeah. What right. about you, Genevieve? Uh, so I, uh, I, I went out to Sacramento maybe about a month ago for a concert and, um, I, I always go to like the local places anytime I'm in a, a different city, um, just to try out the local, not just like local coffee and beans, but also local beer places <laughs> as well. Uh, but I, I went to, uh, this coffee shop called Camellia Coffee Roaster and I got their, um, earth roll blend, which is like a blend of Brazilian and Ethiopian, beans and it's um it's uh it has kind of like this kind of like yours but it's it's like dark berries and like as they describe like chewy caramel it's actually really good believe it or not uh it's really refreshing um has a really cool bag but i i really like the coffee shop if i'm if you're ever you know in the sacramento area you should definitely check them out they they have a lot of different choices and they actually have like good stuff on their menu um really really cool area of it's kind of like a, a hipster section of sacramento uh but uh really cool place really cool coffee shop um and it was very fresh so that's what the guy behind the counter like recommended to me so i was like all right let's do it so i normally do like the single origins but you know i was trying out the blend it was actually really good so yeah and like you ryan like my ritual every day is like you know, I have, it's like when I do my more morning routine, my first practice sessions, like I have to have like a cup of coffee next to me or it doesn't like feel right at this point. Yeah. 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 So I'm, yeah, that's become definitely a, a ritual for me um, for a while now. So yeah, I have to clean up my trumpets quite often because I know there's probably like <laughs> some caffeine in there, <laughs> some residue. Um, but anyway, uh, so Ryan, getting into some of our questions we have for you, um, how did you, I know it's kind of a cliche of the question, but I'm actually quite curious. How did you get into um, music and did you know this was something you wanted to pursue or did that come like much later in life? Yeah, um, I just took some notes here, so forgive me as I <laughs> read just to make sure I don't mess it up um music is running my family uh my dad played the trumpet my grandpa played the trumpet my great grandpa i guess directed sort of like a military band style or concert band style thing in their town so it's kind of run in my family but i'm the first one to do it professionally and i started on the sax you know that i started on the violin actually because uh where i grew up in lincoln nebraska and there were um you know, string programs when you're in fourth grade and then in fifth grade, you could choose a band instrument. So I played violin and I don't know, I, I, I was fine. It was fine. It wasn't my thing, <laughs> but it was fine. Uh, I don't feel like I was all, you know, super good at it or whatever. And then um, uh, when I got into fifth grade, you know, they let you try out a whole bunch of different things. Of course, I wanted to play the drums, but I couldn't do, there's some sort of like rhythmic thing that they wanted you to try to be able to do and I couldn't do it. And so they were like, well, you can't play the drums because... We need someone who has rhythm. I was like, great, that sounds awesome. And then I wanted to play the saxophone. I think mostly because I could, I could actually make a sound on the on the instrument. And um, my mom encouraged me to try the trumpet because it ran in our family, and we had a trumpet at home. I think it was my dad's trumpet from when he was in high school. So I picked that up, and I could make sort of a decent sound, like right out of the gate. You know, it wasn't sort of like you know sometimes when kids first pick it up, you have that very buzzy sound where it's like kind of tight. I don't really have that. And then I took lessons the uh, summer after, I think, my 
or maybe it was, I don't remember exactly when I took the lessons, but um, I ended up liking it. I guess I ended up like taking to it. And so then it was like this thing I was like good at, right? Or at least for what I felt like I was, I was doing pretty well. So then it became this enjoyable thing of like, this is the thing that I do that allows me to be for people to look at me and say, yo, he plays the trumpet. That's awesome. Like he's quote good, right? So it became part of my identity. Once it becomes part of your identity, it's just like, that's the thing you do, right? So um, I really enjoyed the trumpet. I didn't really, I wasn't thinking professionally for a long time, like you do when you're a kid. Um, but I remember, well, there's two events that happened. The first one was, I think, after my junior year of high school. It could have been after my senior year. I can't remember. I think it was after my junior year. There was this jazz band concert. Uh, the Nebraska Jazz Orchestra played this thing called uh, a concert that was titled Trumpet Madness. It was just tons of trumpet soloists and stuff like that. And I was like, that's really cool. Like, I think I would maybe if I could do something like that, that would be awesome, which is ironic because, you know, I play in an orchestra now <laughs> and the, ja you know, a jazz band concert's what got me going. But um, that was sort of a shift I made. I started to take the trumpet a lot more seriously after that point, the senior year. So then I, I auditioned for some schools. Um, the one school I wanted to go to, I, I got like the maximum amount of scholarship possible and it was like, not very much <laughs> and it was very expensive. So I couldn't go there. I auditioned for, then I was like, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. There's the UNL, the Huskers. If anybody's football fans knows about that school, um, that's where I was going to go. And then, um, in April, I got a, uh, I, I, the guy I bought a trumpet for, I bought a Monet trumpet when I was a senior in high school, which is crazy. <laughs> um, I bought that trumpet. And then obviously like a high school kid who's going to buy a Monet trumpet. There's like a level of like, you're somewhat serious about what you're doing. And so that, his name is Mike Thompson. He's really good friends with a guy named Mike Anderson who teaches at Oklahoma city university, Mike Thompson. They're very good friends. They used to gig together when uh, Anderson was in Nebraska and uh, he told them about me. I went down in April to audition and I got a good scholarship to go there. So I ended up going to OCU. And then I think around my sophomore year, kind of been like the end of my sophomore year. I remember talking to my, to Anderson, my undergraduate teacher. And he was like, what do you want to do? Like with your life or something like that. And I was like, I'd love to play in an orchestra. And he's like, okay, well, you're going to have to like get to work, right? Like that's the thing you want to do. So it was around that time that I think I started, I was listening to tons of Chicago symphony, Tons of New York film, you know, just like the big brass stuff. I was becoming inspired by that and thinking, well, I think I would like to do that. Also, I think I was fairly influenced by the fact that when I'm when you're in school, you get to do it with all of your friends. And so if I could do this, if I could do what I'm doing right now and get paid money, that would be the dream. And as anyone who has a job now knows, it's not quite it doesn't end <laughs> up quite like that, um, although there are aspects that are really awesome about it. Um, anyway, uh, so then, you know, obviously at that time, uh, I mean, it's still a great school, but with Barbara and Charlie at Northwestern, that was definitely one of the places that I applied for and pushed really hard to get into. Um, I did get into Northwestern and then, you know, with, I, I studied with, I mean, I don't know if everybody knows how it works, um, or at least it worked then at Northwestern. They each had their own studio. Charlie and Barbara had their own studios. And so I studied with Barbara and then I had access to Charlie and then every year, the very last lesson, you would switch. And I was at an audition my first year. And the second year, we were at like this bar, this barbecue. I don't know if you can hear stuff. They're like fixing an insane hole outside my house. There's construction. It's crazy. So 
if you hear anything, that's what that is. Anyway, um, so I didn't have much exposure to Charlie other than when I went to him and said, hey, I'm getting ready for this or I want to play this for you. And he was always willing to do it. But I had most of my time with Barbara. Um, well, that's like the next question. We'll get into that in a second. But um, yeah, it became pretty serious. And then I got the Indianapolis. I, I won the audition for Indianapolis while I was at the end of my second year of grad school. And so that's obvious. That's sort of the beginning to taking it seriously. I hope that answers what you were looking for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So you just hinted at a little bit. So obviously with what we do, um, mentors, teachers are a big part of our success or just a big part of our life. Um, so who are some of those for you and what are some of the lessons that you've learned um, and how has that impacted the way that you think about music, the way that you teach, even outside of music, you know, in your day-to-day -day life, working out all that stuff? Yeah. Uh, I wrote down a list of names. I'll try to see if I can do this somewhat concisely. But as as all of us would say, there is a long list of people, even if it's small influences, right? Like it's not like well, I certainly have the big pillar people in my in my career or in my life, you know, like my parents, right? Like stuff like that. We have well, maybe not everybody feels that way about their parents, but um, I, I'll try to keep it mostly career specific, just so it stays sort of on track here, but. My very first trumpet teacher's name is Denny Schneider. He was the principal trumpet of the Lincoln Symphony, and he wasn't really taking on students at that point. Like he what he had taught at University of Nebraska at Lincoln, but he retired. And so I was one of his last students, and he just like let me figure it out, like explore, right? Like he I, I remember when I first started, I would take lessons like every like six months. It's just like, I would be like, it's time probably to see him again, you know? So I started in fifth grade and I just took lessons very periodically until, uh, like I said, junior, senior year. Then I started taking weekly lessons because I was like, okay, now I really want to do this. And he never really pushed me insanely hard in, in terms of like, he was just there for whatever I needed, right? Like, I think he was past a point in his career where he's going to be like, you need to do this kind of thing. And that was awesome for me because it helped me develop like a, a pretty intense level of in, uh, internal motivation, right? Like I, once I was like, this is what I want to do, nothing was going to stop me, so to speak. You know what I mean? And so I have to mention him because he's the one that got us started. Uh, Michael Anderson at OCU, he studied with Denny Schneider. So it was sort of at UNL. So it was sort of like continuing that part or that uh, style of teaching. Uh, Anderson, he taught me above all that like, the musical impact is the thing that matters the most. So if you play really well, I remember I was in a lesson with him once and I played the Honiger, the opening of the Honiger, and it went really well, but he's just like, I can't just let you get away with just playing well, right? Like it's got to say something. It's got to mean something. There's got to be some, it's got to fit some sort of musical storytelling. And I probably, the thing I like the story I remember the most, I don't, I don't remember if he would remember this or not, but I was going to NTC my junior year like, I didn't even know what NTC was until my junior year, right? I was sort of like, and we, I didn't know anything uh, uh, when I was younger. And so I applied, I think I applied for NTC my sophomore year, didn't get in. And then I applied for NTC my junior year and got in with Rustiques. And so obviously I'm stressed about going to NTC and all that stuff. And he was like, what is your goal? Like, what is your goal at NTC? And I was like, to not completely, you know, blank the bed when I'm on stage. 
And he was like, ask me what my goal would be. And I was like, what would your goal be? And he said, to tell my story, right? To tell, to say what I have to say. Now at 19 years old, I don't know how much or 20 years old, I don't know how much I have to say, but that statement imprinted on me, I feel like. And still to this day, I'm constantly thinking like, and I've certainly gone in and out of that, right? Through various like stages of development. But I think now, especially, I'm really trying to dive into what do I want to say? Because I feel like I have the skill now to back up saying almost whatever I want to say, if that makes sense. So I think when you're younger, it's hard to say what you want to say because your skill isn't developed enough to just take a breath and go. So I think that comes in stages, but that's pretty impactful. Um Man, uh, Barbara Butler taught me how to practice. Like she taught me how to understand, how to see a problem, how to make a guess about what it is, how to set up a system that allows me. And I've certainly gone way past that with the gold method um, that we'll talk about, I hope later. But um, yeah, she taught me how to understand what like intelligent practice looked like, not just going into the room and just like throwing paint at the wall and seeing what's happening, but deliberately trying to design like, I'm going to get this done. Here's my goal. And then also, interestingly about Barbara, she has so much success doing the thing that I wanted to do, which was placing people in an orchestra, that there's like a level of buy-in and a level of confidence that you get by her just saying, you're ready. Like, mm -hmm. I think I lost so much of that when I stopped studying with her because I didn't have her saying, you're ready. And I've like, that's where the gold method, I mean, we'll get there, but that's what the gold method came from is it's like my attempt at developing a system where I can confidently walk into a place and say, I'm ready for better or for worse. Right. Cause with her, I was just leaning on her to say, you're good to go. You're ready. And when I left North, so I was relatively successful in auditions around them, but I haven't been since then because I think that's a huge part of it is I think I lost the work ethic and the way I was working when I was with her. That's a side thing, but she taught me how to practice. Charlie Geyer taught me what just like incredible musicianship looks like when you listen to Charlie play, especially at that time, you just like, you're, it's like he was telling a story, like you could hear it. And it was so varied. Like the sound would be so, I wasn't ready to understand that at that point, but it was kind of mind blowing when I would play something like Shostakovich second movement, the muted lick from the second movement of the piano concerto. And then he would play it and you felt like you were more there, right? That was like kind of my first exposure. And then the, the next level when I was ready to hear that was when I heard the Boston symphony guys and especially Tom Rolfs at Tanglewood. There was a one class I remember. So there were two classes like this. One of them is actually on YouTube. I'm, maybe you've checked it out or maybe people listening have seen it. But it's sort of a class where we play something and then they coach us and then they come sit in and they would play. It was by far the most educational thing because we could do something and then we could hear them do it and be like, oh, that's the differences between like how they would make something sound right in the hall versus what we're doing. But there's other class was just like the one that's on YouTube, but it wasn't recorded. And I remember we played. Uh, Shostakovich five, the opening of the fourth movement, and then some stuff from Daphnis and Chloe, and then some stuff from Sibelius five. And I don't, I really felt like I had never up close heard somebody like Tom Rolfs make such different sound worlds. Like it was like completely different. Right. And like when he played Shostakovich, it sounded like his trumpet was going to blow up. And when he played Daphnis and Chloe, it was super light and delicate. Like it was almost as if there wasn't a through thread of like, this is Tom. It was like, whatever the music was, it wasn't quite that far. I don't want to make it too much hyperbole, but you get what I'm saying. Like I was, so that became, and then especially 
uh, his articulation. And that sent me on this like 10 year journey of trying to figure out how do I tongue like that? But that's another thing. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I would say now these days, like in Alabama, um, you know, my wife is the principal clarinet uh, player and she has been pretty incredible and like helping me develop as a musician. She just, you know, she just thinks about music differently, like woodwind players and string players. They just think about it maybe differently than we do. So her perspective I've played for colleagues here. Our new principal horn has been pretty awesome. Certainly just sitting next to someone like Nick, we were talking about Nick, our second trumpet player in the ASO. Like there's an ease of Nick's playing that I have sort of like envied, you know, like, uh, and I've been trying to figure out how to do, you know, there's just like all your colleagues around you, especially when you get into a group that plays at a high level, like all of a sudden there's inspiration everywhere. And I haven't always been great about trying to absorb that right like when I first got the job it was like cool I got this job and I'm going to do my thing but I think I was missing out on realizing the opportunities that were around me to grow as a musician to pay attention to ask questions to just to keep that rolling so uh, I don't know if that makes sense or not uh, and then that's like musically and then there you know my high school band director uh, there's a I don't know if you've heard of the Fountain City Brass Band Mm -hmm. um but the artistic director lee harrelson i mean all that whole group is awesome but lee my high school band director people like that kind of i mean for better for worse maybe people do things right or wrong whatever right but i feel like those guys really kind of show me what like real leadership looks like the, the the desire and the willingness to sacrifice so much of yourself and your resources to give what you believe is the best to the people that you're serving again like people can you know when you're in that when you're in that space and you're being vulnerable and you're putting yourself out there like that anybody can be critical of any decision so you know maybe something somebody knows something about these people that are like oh i don't agree with you but for me like beyond the right or wrong decisions you just see a willingness to like go there a willingness to sacrifice everything and i think true leadership looks like that it's not just like i know what i'm talking about but i'm willing to go to the ends of the earth to help you you know see whatever i'm trying to get you to see or so you know that kind of thing if if that i don't know i just rambled for a really long time <laughs> i'm so sorry but that's no, hopefully no. The answer to your question that's great no i think this speaks to you know i in, i think this is not just musicians, but any feel like you have so many mentors and people who have inspired you to, to make the next step in your life to get you to um, where you ultimately want to be in life, especially like for us, it's like that journey starts really early when I so when I tell students like I made this decision, you know, like you like in high school, certainly early years of college that this is the path I want to take. And then you have all these people along the way to kind of help guide you um, either directly or indirectly um, to get to that point. So it, it's definitely there's some truth to that um, about like all these people, you know, my my list of people would probably be just as long as yours. There's been plenty of people who like inspire me, including Tyler sitting here on the screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like hearing him play in undergrad. It's like, all right, that guy can that guy knows what's up. <laughs> So, um, so you're you're currently principal of Alabama Symphony, but you've also served principal in um, in Annapolis for a year or two. So I'm I'm curious, not oh, one year, I got you. So not many people have an opportunity to sit, you know, principal in a a, a major orchestra. So in your experience, um, what has been the the most difficult part of serving as principal in a full time orchestra? 
Um, okay, I can answer this question. Uh, I thought about it. Like I said, I wrote it down, but I can answer it in a short way or sort of a longer-ish way. I'm going to give you the option. <laughs> Go with your heart, man. Go with your heart. <laughs> well, it's kind of important to me. I mean, hopefully this, what I'm about to say, will frame a lot of where we're going to head. But what's I, I think it's important to understand from my perspective that like, I didn't take myself seriously for a very long time, right, as a professional. Like I played well, I played the trumpet well, and I sort of just rode that, if that makes sense. So when I would show up to something, I would play, I would play well, and then I wouldn't really try to embrace the other aspects in terms of either leadership or in terms of even like preparation. Sometimes I would just say, this is good enough. Like, because I'm, I'm not concerned. This is actually such an important thing I've realized recently, but I wasn't concerned with being my best. I was concerned with just being like, basically as good or better than what was around me. Now, like that can be good and bad. It, you can certainly be motivated by the people around you. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not, in my opinion, the right mindset to hold as opposed to you are constantly pushing where you're at because that can just be a lifelong thing. And like if, you're, if your environment is what makes you motivated, that's great while you're in that environment. And then when you leave that environment, it can be hard to motivate yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So that's important because when I, first, when I first got the job, it was just like, I was just concerned with like, am I doing the job? Like, am I playing the notes? Am I like not messing up too much, right? Like stuff like that. And I think, well, I'm just going to read what I wrote. <laughs> I, it's understanding it's just more than playing notes. like. As weird as that sounds, it took me a long time to understand that, right? Because I was, I just didn't take myself seriously. So I was like, whatever, I'm just going to play. It's going to be a good time. And I understand now that not taking myself seriously was basically a defense mechanism, right? Like if I didn't expect too much of myself, then if I failed or if things didn't go well, it's like, well, I didn't try as hard as I could. So it's cool, right? This is the thing Barbara Butler talked about on the podcast episode I did with her. And so it's taken me some time and some self-reflection, some spiritual growth, all those good things to realize like, A, I need to take myself more seriously and B, I need to actually step into the role that is being asked of me, the role that I'm in. Not the role that I want it to be, but what the role is, if that makes sense. And so basically I'm like a musical leader, right? That's pretty obvious as principal trumpet. So it's not just about, can I play the high notes? Can I not miss any notes? But it's, am I prepared to play the right style? Am I prepared to do it the same way every single time? Am I prepared to back up why I'm doing what I'm doing? Am I prepared to like know my part well enough that I can be listening? And, and basically like one of the hardest parts of the job sometimes is you're trying to help navigate like you know, some stages are hard to hear across, right? So you're trying to help navigate. This is what I'm hearing from like the concert master or the strings. And this is what I'm hearing from the percussion. And you're, it's basically like, I try to be like a lightning rod, so to speak, or like a, like a lighthouse, you know what I mean? So it's like, you're trying to navigate all that and then place what you're doing so that everyone can kind of swirl around you, but at the same time, not make it sound like sound easy and effortless. Right. And so that certain level of skill and, and, and like consistency is required to do that. But then understanding that if that's what's being asked of me, then I need to actually step into that role and try hard and not just like rest on the fact that I can be quote, I have enough skill that I could just sort of relax and do a good enough job. But rather, a good enough job is not the point. The point is, what is the very best I have to offer? And I think just in general, in life, I have tried to uh, adopt that mentality 
on everything that I do. Not just like, I mean, obviously there's times where you're going to say, well, I don't have enough time or I don't have the energy to do the absolute best I can. But with most things now, I'm saying not what is the thing, you know, what am I, how much am I being paid to do this thing? Or like, how much do I care about this thing? But rather I'm going to do the very best job I can do in this particular situation, because that's just how I am. That's just what I do. Not like I've convinced myself, but that's just my being right. If that makes right. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. like, it was the shift. So for me, that was the hardest part of the job because of where I came from, right? Not necessarily because it's hard. Some people may not struggle with that because they have that figured out and their struggle will be something else. But because it was hard for me to take myself seriously, because I just, you know, I just wanted to like have a good time, you know, and like we can do that, but it's more fun whenever, when like, you know, for, it's more fun for everybody when you're doing the thing you're supposed to be doing and it's easier for everybody. So that was kind of where I landed when I was thinking about that question and, and you know, what the most challenging part for me has been in terms of growth is just like actually saying, this is what the job is being asked of me. And like these people that care about me that are trying, like my wife, especially. And she's like, it's so funny. She'll hate that. I tell the story, but you know, I, I like succeeded to a, a pretty decent degree, right? Like in my career and and we were talking one time and she just said to me, like, imagine what you'd be capable of if you just tried as hard as you could. Like mm. she said that to me and it just like changed, like something shifted. And like, I don't know if I'm trying to, I don't know what it means to try as hard as I can, you know, but I do think now if, if, ever, if anyone or if you guys or people, whoever's listening, if we've all heard people say you should try as hard as you can, right? Like try your best. Well, I, I think it's important to understand that your best is like one step away from too much, right? And so sometimes your best is going to ask as much of you as possible. Like it shouldn't necessarily be a comfortable feeling to do your absolute best with something. And so for, for like the greater majority of my career, becoming the very best I could at the trumpet is should be the main goal, right? Until you've developed enough skill where maybe you're, you're, your efforts look different there. And then you can maybe start doing other things that you may be interested in, but yeah, doing your best should ask a lot of you. And I was not asking a lot of myself to respect my, my time, my colleagues time, you know, what the job is, all that kind of stuff. So that was my problem, my biggest struggle. Wow. Sounds like, you know, that has been perhaps correct me if I'm wrong. The, the most su uh, surprising part of the job sounds that way you know, as well as the most difficult, would you say that? Or would you say something else has been more surprising? Uh, I'd say the most surprising part of the job is it wasn't like school. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I was ready for it to be like school and it was a pretty rude awakening when it was like, all oh, these people have lives. Like they, this isn't like, this is one thing that they do. Mm -hmm. And they either have families that they care about or they have other interests and other hobbies. And like, I, it's not that I shouldn't expect them to do one thing or another. I just shouldn't expect everyone to see the world the way that I see the world, you know? Right. Yeah. I hear a lot of like professional athletes say that same thing. Like when they go from college to like their professional um, leagues, it's like, you know, in college, everyone's like buddy, buddy, everyone's hanging out. And then you go to the, say like the NFL, it's like, you know, after practice, everyone goes home to their families or, you know, yeah. they're doing this or they're living in a whole completely different city in the off season. So it's, so it's very, very different. So, yeah, I, I think that's true, too. Like, even in my job, it's like, you know, everyone, you know, like school, you want to hang out or go to, you know, the local watering hole or whatever. 
And but you know, <laughs> everyone has responsibilities outside of their job. And they got all this other responsibilities to do. You know, their family, their wife, their kids. So yeah, I I would imagine I would imagine that's a little surprising, especially coming out of college. Yeah. 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 So we're going to talk a little bit about the book that you actually written, which is it's pretty cool. Um, it's called Audition Preparation with the Gold Method. Can you talk a little about this method, um, your philosophy about audition prep? What did I say something wrong? No, I, I was just thinking, do you want the short, medium, or long <laughs> version? You know what I mean? Like this story goes back. Goes back. Uh, yeah, well, this is interesting because um, actually, I know we're going to hit the podcast later on, but when I was starting to do auditions, your podcast actually helped me out a lot um, because you would bring people on and they would share their stories. Um, because it is a, a system, right? It's like kind of figuring out cracking this code. But once you start doing it, you start, you know, figuring out more. And so um, I think this is great that you're putting this together. And I mean, I know too, from following you for several years, you know, you're big into working out and it's like being able to, well, yeah, I'll let you explain it. So talk to us, whatever, again, whatever your heart desires. Um, <laughs> we're here to like, listen to you and sure. your thoughts. Yeah, well, I don't want to. I don't want to talk so long that it's boring or I lose anybody because it's. I feel like I can drone on. I think about this stuff all the time. Um the the gold method came. Okay, I'm gonna tell the. I'm gonna tell the story. I'm gonna go for it. All right, is this Do cool? It. Yeah. Do it. When I what so like when I said like we need a goal. Oftentimes we need a goal to justify pursuing something, right? We want to say, I want to get into a good school. So I'm going to practice hard. I'm going to learn these pieces of music. I'm going to try to figure it out so that I can try to get into the best school I can, or I want to have the best jury I can, or I want to win in TC. Or for me, it was, I want to win a job in an orchestra. That is my goal. So I worked, I mean, you can say what you want. Anybody can say what they want. If anybody knows me from my Northwestern days, you can say whatever you want about how I used my time. I may have partied a little bit, but <laughs> I don't feel like I wasted any. I think I took almost full advantage of every musical opportunity that existed. I was playing for other teachers like Gail Williams, played for Rex Martin a few times. I even played for um, the violin teacher, I um, the, Ram I, the Ramoses. I don't remember his first name. I think I played for him once or maybe I observed a lesson once. I was just constantly like absorbing all the time. And then I had access to, you know, the bassoon teacher and um, Stephen Cohen, a uh, clarinet teacher. And we just had access to all these great players. Right. And I, I was just like, I was obsessed. I was obsessed with trying to win a job. And then I did. But then like, you'll, I've read all these books. It's like, when you achieve one goal, you got to like set another one. Or it's like, well, what do I do now, right? And so this is the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motiva extrinsic motivation. Or this is the difference between I'm achieving a goal or I'm trying to, quote, do my best. Like, if you're doing your best, it's just an ongoing effort. And winning a job is a stop along the way, if that makes sense. So uh, I keep saying if that makes sense, just to make sure I'm being clear. <laughs> if that, you know, like, I, I just feel like sometimes I can, ha I, I can go off on the rails. So when I won my job in indianapolis i didn't get tenure in that orchestra so that was kind of a whole situation we can talk about that later if you want but then i won the job in alabama and then it was like what do i do now you know a lot of my job here is playing like beethoven five and 
Schumann two and Mozart this and Haydn that. We don't play a lot of big repertoire here. So the 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 job itself is not necessarily going to challenge me as a brass player the same way maybe a job in New York or Chicago where they're playing more often and bigger repertoire more often, right? And so I was like, well, what do I do now? You know, and I actually got to this point where I just didn't understand how to like get better at the trumpet for because I didn't have a teacher telling me what to do or guiding me. I wasn't getting feedback and I just didn't understand necessarily. So I kind of just stopped. I don't want to say I stopped caring about the trumpet, but I did stop caring about pushing my limits as hard as I could. Right. I was just like, I know how to do my job at a high level. This is also in that period I was talking about where I may not have taken myself as seriously. So take all that with a grain of salt. But like, I'm also a person who um, I like a puzzle to solve, you know, it, or it's like you got an itch that you need to scratch. The itch is like learning stuff and like, you know, being sort of obsessive about things. So I got into working out because uh, all of my years of partying, it was like time for me to like learn about nutrition and <laughs> stuff like that. Right. So I got really into working out and I absorbed. Yeah, I cannot tell you how many hours like hundreds, maybe a thousand hours of watching YouTube videos over the course of five, six, seven years, learning about programming, learning about, you know, uh, routines, learning about exercise form, learning about all this type of stuff. And I remember being like, this is great. Like you go into the gym and you know what you're going to do, you know, how many sets, how many reps, how many exercises, you know, everything. So all you have to focus on is just doing the best quality work you possibly can. Right. I was like, that's awesome. I like that. And I said, like, well, I wonder if you could like write a program for musicians, right? Where like, cause practice can be like, there's, there's practice routines, but within the practice room, there's a lot of variability. Like sometimes it like, let's say the Ray Mace routine. That's probably the best example. Mm-hmm. There's, it's pretty structured, but it doesn't necessarily eat, like say, well, how many times should you do it? So are you just running through it once? Like what tempo should you run through it at? What dynamic, what this, what that, all these, how long should you, you know what I mean? So there's a lot of variability that exists that like was wondering, well, could you make some conscious choices and say, I'm going to pick what tempo I'm going to pick how many times I'm going to pick this. I'm going to pick that. So I started messing around and I, I remember exactly, I remember exactly when it was, I was teaching at a school here and I wrote a program for my student because originally it was like, the first time I messed around with it was an audition for the Chicago symphony. And I was just saying like in the gym, you do less heavyweight and more lightweight. Right. So like heavyweight, you kind of test your, if one rep maxing is your goal, heavyweight can kind of give you a stimulus that's similar to that. So you can kind of your nervous system and your body can feel that. And then lighter weight, you can do multiple reps and try to dial in like perfect technique. So then you're like not just dialing in perfect technique, but you're dialing in like what you want to be thinking about when you do the heavyweight. So you're not just thinking don't die, but you're thinking, okay, I got to keep my knees here. I got to keep my, you know, keep this tight, whatever. Right. So I thought in the Chicago symphony prep, the first one I did, not the one I made a podcast episode on, but just that, what if I did more slow repetitions than fast? That's the, the only protocol I had. It was really interesting to see what happened. Like I would pick random tempo percentages and then random. So I'd say, I'm going to do two reps at 85% of Petrushka. Okay. Now I'm going to do five reps at half tempo the next day or whatever. Right. It's just like random. 
And then I started putting it into a little bit more of a structure with like a, like a progression. And then I wrote a program for my student to learn the third movement of the Hummel. That was the first time I had ever done that. I didn't even think it was possible, but then I had just written a program that was eight weeks, like his entire practice, all of his practice sessions for that piece were written out for eight weeks. He didn't have to think about anything. And it sort of, I just kept at it. You know what I mean? I just kept asking, could I make this more efficient? Could I make this better? Could I make this, this, can I make this, that? And like right now I'm actually going through, well, I'm about to get to the book, but right now I'm actually going through a audition preparation for the Cincinnati principal audition. And it's like to see how much it's evolved and like the decisions I've made based on the things that I've learned from past failures is pretty cool. And generally speaking, I've shared it with, I don't know how many people, less than a hundred, more than 30. Um, and it seems like the general feedback is, it's just nice to not have to think about ex what I'm going to do. Like, you don't have to sit down and think, well, what do I want to practice today? And then how do I want to practice that? But all of those decisions. So you're left with, how am I going to get the most amount of quality out of what I'm doing? And that becomes a deliberate practice issue, right? So you like fix the structure part of things, which is the gold method. And then you're left with, okay, what does intelligent or deliberate practice look like? And you can start having those conversations with yourself. So it started from working out. It's just the idea that if you walk into the practice room and you know exactly what you're going to do, it makes it easier to go to the practice room and it makes your work almost immediately more efficient because you're just more focused, right? It also, it also like will show you like how much you do or don't focus. That's another really awesome part of the program. So that's the general baseline, right? And then I've learned how to apply it to different things. So I have a four-week fundamentals routine that I do. That's sort of like this cycling thing, right? It doesn't, you're sort of building up to a last week where the first week is slower than the second, the second is slower than the third. And then the fourth week is your whatever arbitrary goal you've set. But then you just refill it out and then you just go back to the beginning of the next month and you're doing this kind of this up and down cycle that hopefully trends upwards. It's the, you know, three steps back, two steps forward, one step back kind of model. I just built that into how I practice. And then I figured out something different for etudes because it was like not the same exact thing. And then for solos and uh, excerpts for auditions, I figured out a different system of preparation. And that's when I wrote that book. The book is basically, it's kind of technical, but it's basically, and I'm going to basically, I need to rewrite it because I've learned so much since I wrote it. I need to just write a new, new updated version but basically, it's like, here is how I think about preparing for auditions. And it's, so it's not it's not like this will win you an audition. It could, but it's not a guarantee. But rather, what it's a guarantee of is if you don't have a system, this is a place to start. Because you need a system of preparation to win a job. You just have to have it. For a lot of us, a teacher was giving us that system of preparation. When I left, I didn't have a teacher giving that to me. So this was my attempt at developing a system. But I always kind of had the intent of sharing the system. I think when you are practicing in a way where your intent is to share it with somebody else, you practice and you think about it differently. Because your goal is how do I learn how to, like, how do I communicate this to somebody? Like, I feel like there's so many professionals out there who have great systems, but they haven't learned how to communicate it to another person in a way that they can actually do something with it. So I've spent a ridiculous amount of time asking people, does this make sense? Could you write one of these on your own? Write one of them on your own. Like, just please tell me everything. Like, I used to be very uh, fixed mindset, if you know that that mindset book, where it's like, 
everybody needs to tell me how awesome I am all the time and all of my ideas are perfect. I'm so far the other direction now. I just want everyone to tell me what I don't know so I can learn it. And so that's what this book is. It's just like, well, you could sit around forever waiting till you have the perfect answer. But I thought I'm going to put this out there and see if anybody responds to any part of this. Mm. And some people have purchased, not a ton of people, but some people have actually bought the book. So I like, I created a book that people bought, which is crazy. I'm not an author. I don't <laughs> know what I'm doing, but like, I feel like I had an idea that was worth sharing and I went through all of the effort. You know, the pandemic certainly gave me some time to figure it out and to do it. And so what I want to change it to is I have two journals that I filled out. One was for the previous, like three months ago, I did the St. Louis principal audition and then now I'm doing the Cincinnati principal. And I I wrote, I wrote, I kept notes on everything. And so what I want to do is I want to go back and potentially write a new book that talks about audition preparation, but from a narrative sense of like, mm -hmm. here's what I was doing at these stages and why I was doing it. Cause I think the why is way more important than the what, like, you know, you, it's like, you could have this system, but like, what decisions are you making? Like, what is your decision-making process? So like, I could say practice Petrushka three times at 66 beats per minute and I could do it and somebody else could do it. And we could get two totally different outcomes based on my understanding of how to use those three repetitions. So that's what the book does. It's not just, I actually go through how I make the structures and the actual programs, but then there's also a deliberate practice section that talks about, this is how you use the program to actually learn and get better and get feedback. So I don't know if that answered any part of your question because oh, yeah. I feel like I just went off on a thing, but um, that is what it is. I mean, the gold method itself is the set of principles. Practice must be goal-oriented. Your practice must have an optimal starting place. Your practice must have a logical progression and your practice should have a defined time frame. And then those are the pillars, right? The pillars could be applied in any number of ways. And then the book is an example of how I apply it to auditions. That's fantastic. That's, yeah. that's that's fantastic. And 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 if anyone who's listening want to check out your book, they can certainly find it on your website. It's called Audition Preparation with the Go Method. Um, check it out at Ryan. Is it RyanBeachTrumpet.com or RyanBeach.com? Yeah, yeah. RyanBeachTrumpet.com. Yeah. Awesome. So I, sorry, oh, can I do a follow up question? Oh yeah, this? of course. Please, please. Um, so with students that you've worked with or you know other clients so to speak that you've done this for what's kind of been the feedback that you've gotten from them yeah so what's tough about this i mean i've had some people that i've worked with like they've advanced i don't think anyone has won an audition yet from the feedback which is also another difficult part of like putting out a book about audition preparation like i haven't won a job in a long time i don't think anyone i've coached has want a job. And a lot of times that's what you hang your hat on, right? It's like, here's this method I use to win a job. So I'm not, my goal is again, not to say you will win a job because I've done it and you can trust it, but rather like, here's a method of preparation that I used to allow me to feel like I knew what I was doing basically. And I could walk into the audition and feel confident. I think that's generally the feedback I've gotten is it's just like people feel like their practice is like, I'm getting more out of it. Right? Like, there's still a whole bunch of other things to figure out in terms of your mindset and trying to work through whatever demons somebody might have. But I generally get the feedback that it's like, I feel more focused. I feel like I'm more on track, which is the sort of like the structure part of it. Right. And then, you know, I, I hope that people feel empowered that they can make their own plans for certain things and go about accomplishing whatever goals. 
Um, but yeah, I, like I have some, I'm teaching at UNA, uh, North Alabama, uh, Joe Gray, he's just got too many students. And so he mm-hmm. asked me if I'd help out. And so the feedback I've gotten from them, I put them all on fundamental routines and the feedback I got there was just, yeah, like for the kids that are doing it. Cause I, <laughs> I think that everyone's busy or maybe some people, you know, don't buy into it the same way, but the kids that have done it, students that have done it, um, I think they just see that, like the, the small progression, if that makes sense. Like, it's not like where things are way different, but they can see that they've actually improved upon the things that they set out to improve upon. I think if you can prove to yourself that over a period of time, you can get 5% better, then it's just a logical leap to say, well, what if I did that 20 times? I'd be a hundred percent better. Right. And like, that's where we get into like these small but sustainable jumps rather than I'm going to try to cram learn this thing as fast as I possibly can. But rather, it's just like, I'm just going to show up every day working towards this goal. I'm going to do, I'm going to leave enough time for me to actually work on it. And then I, I think, you know, I think they just see that when they're dedicated towards being disciplined, I guess um, there's small progress. And I think seeing progress is exciting. So um like I said, I don't have any, like, this thing won me the audition yet, but I'm still trying to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people want to see the they in-game it, right? So they're like, oh, if I do this and this will happen as far. But in this case, it's one of those things where it's like, this is a great place to start. And then, of course, with anything else, you refine as you go. Like, and you make tweaks. That's part of life. That's part of whatever you're doing, especially within music. And so I think it's so great that you're giving people a starting point and then what you mentioned, feedback, like feedback is so important having that. And I was thinking about it too, I was like, man, you uh, ever think about teaching? Cause <laughs> like, well, I mean, just so many people are, are lost, right? When it comes to this, because it's like, how do I get better? It's such a big question. And you are, have an ability to break it down and simplify it for people again, to where you take out a lot of the question marks and allow them to focus on their mindset or what, what their focus of attention is going to be on when they're in the practice session, which is where, like you mentioned, nice, now, nice buzzword there, focus of attention. That's yeah. a good buzzword. I like that. <laughs> well, cause now they can go and practice and it's like, okay, through this rep, I'm going to focus on this for this rep. The second rep, I'm going to focus on just this, you know, and it's like getting into deeper work, right. Mm-hmm. Deeper practicing, not just like, all right, flip open a page. Let's see what happens. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so, there's a few things I want to touch on on what you just said, if that's okay. The first one is what you said is exactly right. It's just a starting place. I'm not trying to pretend that I have all the answers, but I am trying to pretend that if you have no system, this is a good starting, a good place to consider where to start. And what you said about refining the process, like everyone who's won an audition has developed and refined a process. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like somebody just, I mean, some people will have success right out of the gate because they maybe have a teacher and they play in a certain way where they prepared well and they were the, they were what the committee wanted. But if you talk to guy, you know, Chris Smith in San Diego, if you talk to someone like him, like Chris is constantly like thinking and refining and getting to a place where he's taken a lot of auditions and he's had a lot of success in auditions. And it's a constant process of like adjusting to what's going on. Like, I want to give the people the ability to say, I can, I can, I understand how to put this together so that whatever's going on in my life, I can develop a system that's going to allow me to pursue this goal while I have these. I don't, it's not like I can only pursue this goal 
if I have all the time in the world. Like right now I got a lot of stuff happening and I'm still preparing for Cincinnati, right? And that's what I want other people to have. But you're gonna have to go through this process of refining things, right? And I think if you imagine you take, you you basically have to be, this is an unfortunate reality, you have to be willing to burn a few outcomes so that you can fail and figure things out. So if you look at it like your first audition as, Here's this system that I got from this book. I tried it out and then I go to the audition. I'm going to see what happens. There's going to be some things that go well and some things that don't. So then you say, okay, next time I do it, I'm going to keep doing the things that went well and I'm going to change whatever I think what caused those negative outcomes. I'm going to try to change something to address that. And then you do it again. Within, if doing that, within like five auditions, you're going to have a pretty good system. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then it, again, it goes back to this whole growth mindset that you mentioned. And then this yeah. constant feedback of like, it's almost like you're a scientist in the lab. Okay, this worked really well. Let's let's just try this. And again, you have to be okay with failing because that's the only way you're going to see if something works or doesn't. Yeah. So you have to, that's why I mean, like winning a job, if you're looking at, I'm trying to develop this system, that's going to be the best for me, or I'm trying to be the best I can possibly be. It's easier to swallow saying I failed at this audition versus winning the audition is the only thing that makes it m worth it. Right. Because right. if you fail, if you're trying, if you're saying the only thing that'll make me feel like this was worth it is winning the audition. If you fail, you'll feel like it's not worth it. If you're thinking I want to develop this system and I need to take an audition because that's where I'll figure it out. Like you said, like a science experiment, failing just means you have data. Like scientists, they don't get bummed out. I mean, I'm sure if you fail for like 20 years trying to figure the thing out, it can get frustrating. But failure is a part of like learning in the scientific method, right? And that's interesting. So you said another thing, the scientific thing. My friend Jason Haheim, he's the timpanist in the Met. He's, I don't know if you know who Anders Ericsson was. He wrote the book Peak. He's the one who coined the term deliberate practice. Jason was actually going to work with Anders Ericsson on creating like science experiments on like practicing and musicians to figure out some actual data about what are effective methods of practicing deliberate practice. His met he, what he, and he used to be a scientist at a nanotechnology company for like 10 years in Chicago. And then he like started pursuing auditioning and won a job is in the met. Right. And so, so all I say all that is his definition of deliberate practice is the scientific method applied to music. Mm. Right. When you start thinking about your practice sessions as I have a problem, I'm going to hypothesize a solution. And then my practice is just figuring out those solutions. It's very different from if I just show up and practice Arbin, I'll get better. Like okay. you're thinking I have problems. Now exercises are ways to exploit figuring out where those problems are. And then you can record yourself and say, well, what do I think is going to fix this? Most students don't have a depth of knowledge to say, I know exactly what's going to fix this. That's why you have a teacher. Your teacher has that depth of knowledge. So it's not like the teacher is the only thing that gives you access to growth. You can begin to do that at any point in time. It's just if you don't have the depth of knowledge to immediately identify the solution to a problem, you go to someone who's solved those problems, which is a teacher. Because I feel like sometimes in school, we think, my teacher is the only way I can get better. That's what I described with Barbara, right? Mm. So like now I understand that I can get better. And then if I'm stuck, I can reach out to any, like anybody that I potentially, who does something that I'm like, oh, I like the way that they do that. I want to go talk to them. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of what, that's kind of how you do that. 
at least from my perspective. And then you mentioned something about focus. And I think it's super, super important we touch on this because basically focus is the gate. It's like the gateway to learning, right? Like I've listened to the Huberman podcast, if you know Andrew Huberman. So I've listened to that a lot. And I, I don't, we don't need to go into the whole thing. But basically, if, if it's so important to understand that if you're not focused when you're learning, your brain is not actually like learning, right? So like, I'll give a, an example of how I practice to show how like how focus plays into this, right? So right now for the Cincinnati audition, I have a whole list of excerpts that I have, like a whole program for two weeks. And so it'll say like promenade and then it'll give me a tempo. So I'll record that repetition at let's say 92 or whatever. And then I listen back and then I write down in my notebook, uh, okay, this articulation was this or this note was a little or the octave was like not in tune or whatever, right? Promenade from pictures at an exhibition, if anybody's not aware. And then my next repetition now has a very specific focus. And my next repetition, and at least in this prep, is like 20% slower. And so I will record that repetition. And then if I need to, like let's say it's the octave is out of tune. Well, I'll pull out my tuner. I play the low note, play the high note, try to get that octave in tune, maybe play a few notes before it. That's where you do the isolation thing, right? You're going to try to isolate the problem. And then I'll play that second repetition and record it, the one that's slower. And now I'm trying to put it back into context. So what happened was I identified a problem. I isolated it to find a possible solution. I put it back in context to see, did that solution work? If you find a solution that works, then you just got to do that solution every time and it will work every time. Of course, you know, consistency is a part of it. But like, that's what I mean, at least what I mean when I say focus and practice, that's what I mean. It's like you're finding problems and then you're solving them and you're focused on how do I do it. And then also part of focus, especially for high level performing, I think, is learning what to think. So it's not like, our nervous system is just like electrical impulses, right? And our thoughts are are guided by our nervous system. So like, basically, if we want practice and performing to feel similar, right? Sometimes you go to the practice room and you play something and you're like, great, I got it. And then when you go perform, it feels very different. My, my solution to that right now is if you can dial in what you want to be, not just like how it feels and what the notes are, but actually physically, what am I going to be thinking while playing that? then you can just try to think the same exact thing. Like you've programmed yourself what you want to think. And if all these, if like, you know, myelination and all that stuff, we don't have time to get into that. But like, if you've myelinated that thought pattern, it should be just as habitual as the fingers going down in the right spot and the way you're moving your air. So I really think focus is not just like, here's the so problem I've solved, but the solution to the problem is what then you're focused on when you come back to that section. Like, oh, I got to blow through this octave in a certain way. Well, now just think about that every single time. And you've, over the course of time, you'll develop like note by note, measure by net measure, how to keep your mind on track. So it's not just luck if you get it right, but rather you did it on purpose by thinking these things that caused this outcome. Sorry if I just rambled there, but that's something that's oh. I've I think about all the time now when I'm practicing. Yeah, yeah. I love it, man. I'm eating this up. This is like <laughs> alley. So <laughs> you've read like all the same books I have, like Deep Work and Mindset <laughs> and the Focus of Attention, the Gabrielle Wolf stuff. Like yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm also yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. All this stuff is fascinating to me. Um, yeah, because it's getting into the science of it, and it's. I think that there's a lot of times 
we're guessing at what we're doing. And so now if you can have factual scientific things that have been studied and it's like, no, this actually works. Like your body's like, if you do this, like your body will react in this way. And I think that's really cool. Cause it's like, yeah, you can train it to do what you want it to do. And like you mentioned too, it's like, cool. My focus of attention was great for two measures <laughs> at this thing. And now it's like, you got to work deliberate practice, right. To get that to four measures, to six measures, to eight, you know, and yeah. Um, yeah, that's I why we practice slowly too, right? That's what that's why we practice slowly. Not because it makes it easier, but because we can think about more stuff. Yeah. I, I was talking. And, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say slowly and within reach, right? So it's yeah. nothing. Yeah, it's like all like in your wheelhouse for the most part, right? And then there's probably a percentage that's kind of out of reach or like right at the edge. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was talking. To, so my son plays violin. And it's a struggle for him as a musical instrument. He's like 10. So it's a struggle for him. And I was trying to relate it to him and help him understand. So when we do, he, we do math problems, he comes home and he's like, I got to do my homework. So I ask him the math problems and then he does or spelling, right? Spell this word. So for a math problem, I may say 72 divided by six. And he sits there for a second. He's like, I have no idea. Is that 12? I don't even know <laughs> that. And Not he's close. like thinking about it. Right. And then I was like, so when I ask you a math problem, like you can stop and think and then answer. In music, you can't do that. Like in music, it's all happening at the same exact time. So if you don't know what the notes are, if you don't know what the rhythms are, if you're trying to play it at tempo, generally speaking, it's hard for you to do that because you can't stop and think. So when we slow things down to like an atrociously slow tempo, it's like you're almost stopping and thinking for like every single note that's happening. Now, if we, when you understand like sort of the order of operations of what you should be trying to establish in any given practice session, if you can just understand the music that you're playing, it makes learning it way easier. Mm -hmm. So I think people try to learn the music without understanding the music, if that makes sense, right? So it's just like I'm practicing it and I'm going through the motions and I'm doing this thing, but they don't have a deep understanding of the rhythms and the notes and how they're going to do it. So to me, there should be a, a period of where it's generally characterized by slow practice at the beginning of learning something, not to learn it, but to say, I now understand everything. So as I speed it up, I'm speeding up something that I have like full command of. I just can't, I don't have the tech, the coordination of skills yet to be able to do it at the faster tempo. It's the same thing as doing lightweight to di dial in perfect perfect form and then saying, now that I understand the form, as I, as I raise the weight, I'm still focused on keeping that same form. That's the same kind of concept. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I could go on. I told oh, you. Yeah, I, could, yeah, I could go on. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, well, just the, the, the kind of change direction of conversation, um, as a, a working musician, um, and you know, you, you, you're also doing some teaching. Um, what do you think is the greatest or one of the greatest challenges facing mm. our field of music as a whole? It's a great question. I love this question. I think about this question a lot too, obviously for the reasons that you described, it can feel like classical music is a dying art form, right? It can feel like people are, you know, it's like only, you know, gray haired people are showing up and, you know, the youngins don't care about it. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I do think relevance is the greatest thing that's face we're facing. And it's just because like in the seventies, there were let's for the sake of argument, there were like five things you could do on Friday night. And now there are like 
600 things you can do on Friday night because all the streaming platforms and all the other different types of art and all the other different restaurants and bars and everything that have opened up, like we're, we're competing for people's attention, which is what any business or anything, any entertainment industry is doing. And I think an orc, at least to my, this is just my opinion, but I think that we have relied on assuming people will care about orchestras just because they should, or because we want them to without understanding why, why should they care? Like why, who cares if an orchestra d dissolves? How would you answer that question, Javian? That's a good one. I, I, I think uh, traditionally speaking, I think people think that because it's 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 like this idea, like if something has always occurred, it will continue to occur because we've always known it and seen it to be that way. Therefore, it will always continue to be that way. So I think there's this idea that, oh yeah, orchestras will just always be around because society has said so. Um, now, why should people care about it? That's a great question. I I think there is something to be said about um, um, just like art in general, and that's a big spectrum. Like art, it can be a lot of different things, but classical in terms of like classical music, I think it's important because it's it is tied into so many traditions, um, not just European traditions, but African traditions, um, um, uh, Southeast Asian traditions. There's so many traditions and, and art forms that can be lost um, if, you know, the orchestra world just completely dissolved. Um, and I think there's, I because again I think about this also because you know I, I play into orchestras and you know like you we probably see this very similar audience as you said like older population typically and I, I always wonder like in 20 30 40 years what does this look like um so I think you know in terms of why it's important I think it's because of those things and and maybe we don't even realize how much just call it western art music influences um everyday music pop music you know hip-hop all these other art forms and how there's this direct line between the two that you know for so long especially in today's society it's like there's this big gap you know no one sees the connection anymore or, or maybe they are just starting to see it again but it's been it's been like separated for so long that there's been this big breakdown and, and now orchestras are really really suffering i think um worldwide and I, I i there's this story that just recently posted i think yesterday or maybe a few days ago of the metro metropolitan opera having to revamp their whole season because they're seeing you know loss of revenue because people are not showing up for the the classics but they're they are showing up for the new the new works newer works so now they're they're addressing that by doing more of the new works and less of the the more traditional the Strausses and the Mozarts, Beethoven, yeah. etc. So I thought that was very interesting that the Metropolitan Opera, which is one of the greatest orchestras and opera companies in the world, is also struggling and having to be you know face this reality. Yeah, I think it's because we assume people will care about it, like you yeah. said, we'll always care about it, right? And so the real question is, well, let's let's say everything you just said, I agree with. Let's say it's all the all these connections have happened and there's it's like so intermixed and tied in. So all of that has already happened. What would be the problem with orchestras disappearing 
but those connections having already been established that that me everything is all the better off for orchestras but what if we don't need them anymore mm. right so like my take on this is if you look at a company like sears right sears was like a department store they actually had a catalog where you could order things from from the catalog and and then everything went or like or like you know JC Penny all these department stores everything happened and then Amazon showed up and blew everything up right and some places shifted and adjusted and others didn't that's why people aren't at like when i was a kid the mall was the place that you went mm-hmm. like you would just go like who knows what you're going to do there you're not going to buy anything you don't got money <laughs> But like you just went, that was the place. And now it's a very different vibe. Like you go, I was in uh, a, a department store uh, right before Christmas, just looking for some stuff. It's just such a different vibe now, you know? So Amazon blew everything up and you say, well, why do we need department stores anymore? Well, we probably don't, right? So then the idea is, is that some places saw that the landscape was changing and they understood that they're going to adjust what they're doing. And that just because department stores have always existed doesn't mean that they will always be needed, right? So my take on this is that orchestras, we've assumed that everything will always be. People will, there will always be people who value the arts. And I think there are, there's a huge population of people who don't understand, they, they value things that an orchestra would provide. They just have no idea what it is. Like they mm-hmm. have an idea of what an orchestra is. They have an idea of what going to an orchestra concert is like. And they either might be right and they don't really care about that. They'd rather spend their time and their money elsewhere or they're wrong about it and they won't give it a chance because their preconceived notion about going to an orchestra concert is wrong. What I think orchestras need to do is do a way better job at saying this is what we are. This is who we are for. This is what all businesses have to do to thrive is they have to find their people. Now, you don't need, especially with an orchestra, for ticket sales, you don't necessarily need, like that's not your biggest point of revenue right like it's donors and corporate donors and stuff like that so you certainly for an audience point of view you want to program certain things but i just think how could you make the experience better you know if you think about going to a movie the experience is not you show up and then you go sit down and watch a movie and you leave there's the i'm gonna maybe get some snacks or the popcorn you sit down there's those pre-movie things you know like there's a whole experience to it it's Mm -hmm. not just i sit down and i watch a thing and then i leave reclining seats exactly right also they've evolved in those ways too mm-hmm. right like they've made the experience more comfortable so orchestras haven't done that orchestras have just said you're going to show up you're going to listen to us and you're going to like it and <laughs> i don't think that that's i think there could be ways i think i mean i can only again speak for myself a few years before the pandemic happened i was doing stuff like going out into the lobby before a concert and just saying hi to people I was just like, welcome. Thanks for coming to the concert. At intermission, I would go into this area called the Patrons Lounge, which I think are like more high ticket, maybe donors, maybe whatever. And I would just talk to people and say like, hey, like I wanted their experience to be, they met a musician and that was awesome, right? Like, could you imagine going to your favorite band's concert and you got to meet the band? Like, that would be awesome. I want, I think that like, I think video and and stuff like that should be a more part of the process. You could put videos that show this is what we're doing in education or this is what we're doing over here. Like, I think there's a whole way you could think about that. But beyond that, I just think understanding what it is to go to an orchestra concert, being able to create things that help people see and understand this is what it is. So if they value those things, they understand an orchestra concert is where they can be 
And then for donors, I think it's just helping them understand and seeing how their how their dollar isn't going to be like not necessarily wasted, but how it's not just going to disappear, but how what value, like where is it going? What is it doing? And I'm not saying it's easy. I think it's very difficult to compete with, you know, other things uh, because like, you know, there's like food banks, right? Mm -hmm. Like a food bank story is if you give us money, people will be fed. That's a pretty powerful story. If you do an orchestra, if you give us money, we get to keep playing Beethoven and Mahler and Mo. You know what I mean? It's not as good of a story. So I think relevance is the biggest challenge. And I also think we don't understand our own story well enough. And I don't know if you listened to the episodes we did on the podcast, but there was like a short period of time where I was actually asking these questions. I was like, like I, I put out a survey, I think, and uh, maybe 20 or 30 people wrote in and it was questions like, what, why is classical music relevant? What is the role of an orchestra in its community? Because that's another part of an orchestra that I think is overlooked is it's not just that we play these things. We're like part of the community. So like, mm -hmm. what role does it serve? Like, how can we justify this? Not as an art form, but as a business, mm -hmm. like what value do we bring to our community? Because like maybe the art form of orchestras can survive, but individual orchestras in its community don't have a place. And so maybe they're not as supported, but the art form big picture is. Does that make Oh, yeah. No, no, that that's important. I, I, that's something, you know, I, I've served on some committees and we, we talk about that, like, how do we get this, this organization, this orchestra to be a pillar, a very important part of the community. So like, what can we do to make this a, a just this very, very important part of like the people who live in the community, so they feel like they have you know, great pride in orchestra. And, and a lot of people I talk, so oh, we have an orchestra in our, our community, like how awesome, you know, a town, you know, we're not a big city, but we have an orchestra and, and people, you know, support that. So like making that such a, a important part of the orchestral uh, experience um, and, and being like a pillar in the community. I think that's really, really important. And I think sometimes that is, um, I would say that's definitely something that's missed with, with probably a lot of orchestras making it their their organization a very important part of the of the the community. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um all right, so before we get off, we got one more question. <laughs> and we've hinted at your podcast. Yeah. But now we're gonna talk about your podcast. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> also a story. All right, so your podcast is called That's Not Spit, It's Condensation, which I think is a great title. You got it? Yep. Yeah. And you are also on, uh, I subscribe on Apple Podcast. Are you on Spotify too? Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Look at that merch. Oh, look at the, look at the quality merch. of this mug. You got wow. That is you got merch. just, it used to be that color. <laughs> now... <laughs> A whole new level. Yeah, it's on it's on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and I think Google Podcasts, right. if that's even a thing. Nice. So, yeah, tell us a little bit how you got that started. <laughs> and then, obviously, I mean, I know you probably have learned so much from it just because you're listening to people's stories. Again, I'm a fan of your podcast. It helped me out tremendously, especially as I was trying to navigate um, through like what audition processes are, are like. And so, um, again, there's so many resources out there, but I definitely recommend Ryan's podcast. So yeah, share with us, you know, what you've learned on this journey leading that podcast. Uh, well, it's awesome to hear, uh, that 
I'm sure it's the same for you when someone reaches out to you or is able to tell you that your podcast or the, the any uh, kind of content and things you've created was meaningful to them and like not just was interesting, but actually educational and helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always really uh, humbling and just like gratifying, I guess, you know, yeah, to yeah. hear that like it was that helpful, you know, because I put a lot of time and effort and thought into um the kind of resource i wanted to create so it's cool to hear that i appreciate that and i'm glad that it was that for you um i started the podcast originally i wanted to interview orchestra musicians for the orchestra so that we could get a resource of like into our community of getting to know our our sort of musicians behind the scenes it started because I listened to a Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson. I just picked a random one. Maybe it was the most recent Joe Rogan. I didn't like listen to podcasts for a long time. I listened to that one and I had just never heard a podcast. So I was like, wow, I feel like I know Jordan Peterson, even though I don't know anything about him. I just felt like you could just talk, you know, it was like, I liked that. So I, I want to do that with our orchestra musicians. And it just didn't pan out. Like I didn't kind of get the reception that I was hoping for. Again, this goes back to, I think, the kind of reputation that developed for me, whether I deserved it or not, kind of hindered the ability for people to support it. That is the most political way I'm going to say that. Um, <laughs> and then Kathleen was like, why don't you just do it on your own? I was like, well, that's not a bad idea because I'm a very motivated person. And so I started in January of 2019, obviously like a long bit before the pandemic started. And originally it was going to be every other week you know, I wanted to like interview people and talk to them and learn. Right. And then I also had thoughts and opinions. I mean, I'll be honest about this. It doesn't make me sound great, but I think it's important to the story of the podcast. But when I got a job, I thought I was going to get calls left and right to, for people to be like, Oh, we want you to, we want to know everything that you think. And you got to come to a masterclass and you got to do this. And Maybe like, I guess I either don't have a big enough job or people that's just not, but that wasn't the case. Right. So I had a level of like, I feel like I have things that I want to say, and I feel like that could be valuable, but no one's asking me. So I just made my own platform where I could then share the things that I cared about. And it was like two or three episodes at first, like that, the the second episode ever was powerlifting and music, what they have in common, which is like sort of the ish Genesis, right. Of the gold method of where it is now. Um, but I wanted to interview our orchestra musicians and other people. And then uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to start interviewing whoever I want. And, you know, obviously I learned a ton about creating things and putting it out and how that process works. But yeah, like one of the most fascinating things is like, let's say you've listened. I don't know how many episodes I have. I think it's like 160 or something like that now. Right. Like, Let's say you've listened to 40 of them, right? I've listened I've listened to four times that because I've done them all, right? So like I have I don't remember a lot of it, but I have like all of that information of talking to people like in my brain. Whether I can remember it or recall it is a different story, but hopefully that point makes sense. Like it's like I've learned so much because I've just had all these conversations with people that I would never have had the opportunity to have a conversation with if I wasn't under the guise of a podcast. Like there's so many, you know, uh, I would say big name players that I would never just like, hey, can I just talk to you, you know, but oh, can I interview you for my podcast? Oh, yeah, sure. So I get to do that. Another thing I'm really I'm really glad that I could do is I could interview Barbara. I have access to Barbara. A lot of people don't. 
And so when Barbara's episode, like when we did that, there's so much of it. I was like, yeah, I have heard this. And all of her students would be like, yep, that's a Barbaraism. But for people who have never heard it before, it's like kind of life-changing, you know? So I was glad to be able to also bring conversations with people that um, others may want access to, but don't have it for obvious and rightful reasons to be able to get a little look into you know a window. So that was pretty cool. And then, you know, obviously just like the practical things about whether it's audition taking or just people's perspectives on things and why they do things has been great. Um, and then I would say somewhat selfishly, I've actually gotten opportunities. I think there are people who know who I, who I am because of my podcast and not my playing, which is a surreal feeling. <laughs> yeah. But I think I've gotten opportunities or the opportunities my ask has been made uh, more legitimate by the fact that I have this podcast and not just my playing. And so I would say the big thing that it did for me is it expanded my view of who I was or who I am or who I could be, right? Instead of it's I play principal trumpet and orchestra, that's the thing that I do. Well, now I have a podcast. <laughs> and now at this stage, I have a YouTube channel and I'm making other YouTube content for Houghton Horns and I'm making some videos for our orchestra and um, you know, what I mean, like it's it's like it sort of was the door that opened it towards like, oh, my gosh, like I could probably learn to do anything. So, like, do I want to learn to do all these different things? Well, yes or no, I can deal with that. But like it sort of opened the door for that. Um, and it's like, you know, I'm I'm sure part of the reason I'm having this conversation right now is because of my podcast. I mean, I'm sure like the 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 play the. Like, I'm sure my position is part of it, but I would have a feeling that you might not know even who I am without the podcast, you know? Like, well, I'm not sure Principal Trump of <laughs> Alabama is on your radar as much as this podcast that you listen to and got value from, you know? Well, funny enough, you know, you, you don't know this, but I think the first time I didn't meet you, but I, I saw you was at a NTC Um uh, I think you were playing with the trumpet ensemble NTC. Uh, NTC. Oh yeah, that was a lot. Yeah, um, that was that was good. Yeah, I was there because I I was also competing that year, and I remember because you were playing pick. I forget what piece you guys were playing. I was like, poet and peasant. It was an awesome. Yes, arrangement. yes, that's what it yeah. was. <laughs> and I said, man, who was playing piccolo? He is killing that part because that is not easy. Yeah. So that's that when fun. I I I think you that's what brought you on my radar initially, and then. You know, um, after, you know, Nick won the Alabama job, and I was like, oh, who's playing principal? He's like, oh, like Ryan, Ryan Beach. And I said, like, oh, I think I know who that is. And I looked at it, I said, oh, okay, I, I remember Ryan. Um, so that kind of put me on the radar. And and then, you know, I uh, started watching some of your, your podcasts, obviously, uh, years later after that. So it's a little bit of, uh, or at least for me personally, like I saw you at this thing, you know, trumpet players, this very small world. Um, I saw you at this thing and then you started doing the podcast and you, you got the Alabama Symphony job. And so that kind of how you, at least you came on my radar. And I know uh, Tyler's seen a bunch of your your, your episodes of your podcasts. Um, so it's, I think it's a little bit of all the things. And, and I think yeah. that's true when you said about like oh yeah now i have this this podcast and you know for at least for me and, and tyler when we started this journey our our podcast started through um uh the pandemic we was like we're just hanging out with some people just doing like a, a zoom talk and say like, hey we should actually like 
record this conversation and and it kind of just kind of went from there and what's been cool for me is i i probably like you i i've had people who've reached us hey man i had my students check out this episode that you did on like performance anxiety and and so that's been like really weird it's oh well thank you you know but it's mm-hmm. i don't know i guess i i for me i was thinking oh, i'm just we're going to record this thing we just put it out there and if people listen to it great if not you know it's it's all good so it's, it's yeah. weird for me when you know people say oh yeah i enjoyed that episode on whatever topic it was um so that's that's been a really cool experience yeah so i've I don't know if you're going to jump in, Tyler, but I, I do want to say, too, because if people are aware of my podcast, they've noticed that I haven't posted recently. Like, I basically posted weekly from April 2019 to June of 2022. Wow. I only missed one week. So I got pretty tired of calling people <laughs> or reaching out and, like, having, you know, you got, as you know, depending on what your level, what your relationship is with it, like, you got, like, I was meeting a lot of people for the first time and I had to have a conversation that was interesting enough that people would listen to it. Mm-hmm. It's like a whole different skill set of like li- really truly listening to yeah. somebody else, not just like, okay, cool, but like, okay, I'm listening. Okay. Cause it used to be I would listen until I got the question I was going to ask and then I was out. But, but like recently now, it's like, oh, I've forgotten like, you know, I'll forget like 10 questions. Because I'm like actually trying to listen. And so I just, I, in June, I was like, I just need to take a break. Like I'm going to take a break for the month of June. And then I'm going to come back in July. And I just didn't. So I've only <laughs> done two episodes and they were just recapping the St. Louis audition prep that I did. So I have no idea when I'm going to come back to it. I've felt like it was whatever I had something that I wanted to say. Like, I don't want to get rid of the platform, but I'm just not sure what my relationship with it is going to be, um, you know, long-term. I'm, I've thought about doing some sort of like, six to eight episode series Mm. of like i'm gonna interview like college teachers and talk about uh pedagogy or to talk about ways that they do or ways they've seen or this or that or i'm gonna interview you know orchestra people but with the specific like shorter episodes specifically of like what's the most challenging like kind of what you talked about what's the most challenging thing about the job um to still answer questions i'm interested in that's always been the through line is i've always like if you listen back to the beginning i'm asking different questions then later, it's because I've always been like, these are the things I'm interested in learning right now from people. So I might shift that towards like sort of asking multiple people similar things, making not hour and a half, two hour long episodes. I- I'm not sure, but if anybody's wondering, that's kind of why I stopped. Nice. Well, we'll look, definitely be looking forward to that. Wh- wh- yeah. Whatever journey or whatever path you're yeah, wherever. <laughs> Whatever happens, yeah. So, um, you know, before we we leave off, you know, you've already mentioned that you you're preparing for the Cincinnati audition. Um, I love Cincinnati. I used to live there for a short period of time. Um, so I, I wish you best of luck. Um, are you working on any other projects outside of that? Or, oh yeah. Uh, I got to play the Gregson with the orchestra in February. Oh, I love that piece. Awesome. I do too. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then like, uh, I got a, I've, I've got a partnership with Houghton Horns. They send me like a box of stuff and then I got to make review videos for trumpets. I don't have to, I, we agreed to do it. So, you know, sort of always chipping away at that. Um, I've got some projects with the orchestra trying to leverage the video skills into trying to like create those types of things for the orchestra. Cause I think they are valuable. Mm. And so I've been slowly learning and slowly growing and taking like, 
I know you're not necessarily looking for like a maybe, or maybe you are looking for sort of a cat, but one thing I feel like that I didn't do when I was younger that I'm glad I do now that maybe other people could think about is I just think there are so many more opportunities that were available to me than I ever realized. You know, I've always, I was always waiting for like something to happen and working towards that thing. But now I, now I'm basically like, what I want to do is I want to create videos for some thing. And then, so it's like, well, if A, I just start creating, right? I'm not waiting for someone to say, what do you want to do about this? I start creating. And then, you know, when other people give you an opportunity to do something like for, for, I started with my own YouTube videos. And then like I had, this is a true, this is actually how this, I think it's a beautiful thing. I was making YouTube videos, learning about lighting, learning about cameras, learning how all these things, types of things work. And then in the winter of 2020, when the pandemic was, we we wanted to share some holiday stories or whatever on our orchestra's uh, musicians Instagram. And so they asked Kathleen and I, if we would do something. And so most people were just like putting up their phone and then they were just recording it. But I was like, well, I think we should go all out. We got the lights out and we did a multi-camera thing where we sat in front of our Christmas tree, told this story. And then me, Kathleen and our daughter, Alina, she played piano, did a, an arrangement Kathleen made of, uh, I think it was how great thou art. And we had multiple camera angles and like, it was all, it was like, I went to the whole thing. Right. And then I did that project. And the reason I did it that way is because I said to Kathleen, our audience deserves the very best that we can give them. So let's go through all this effort. I also want to learn how to do this, but let's go through all this effort. Then nothing happened. And then fast forward, uh, like a long way. Um, we started to, we wanted to start releasing a newsletter. The musicians like for the Alabama symphony wanted to release a newsletter of our own and uh, they were interested in audio and video stuff. And so somebody who have I had a pretty tumultuous relationship with reached out to me and asked, like, can we go do this? And we talked and we were able to sort of bury the hatchet. So like those skills, like basically, well, we need you and we're going to have this conversation. We need that. We would like the skills. And I said, sure. So we sort of like healed a little bit of a relationship, which was cool, whatever. But then I started making these like interview these videos for the musicians. And I was like, Kathleen, I really think I'd like to do these interview videos. You know, when you see them and there's two camera angles, but I was like, but I need a second camera. And she's like, right. You can't just go around buying cameras. They're expensive. I was like, I know, but I, you know what I mean? So it's like, I want to do this, but I, I I'm not going to wait for somebody else to say, we want you to do this. I'm going to go out and figure out how I'm going to get a second camera. If Kathleen, she was like, yeah, I get it. What's going on. And I, we met, did that. And then this musician thing. So I started doing musician interviews for the musicians uh, of our, the kind of like what I want to do with the podcast, but shorter. And then I got better and better and better at that. And then I offered, I, I talked to our education director. I said, I think we should do something where we highlight our education stuff. Cause I think that's like probably the easiest sell for donors. And then she said, yeah, that sounds cool. So I did one project for free. They asked me to do another one. They're interested in working me into the budget for next year, from what I understand. So like, if this, like, if this story, it's like, I didn't wait for an opportunity to happen. I went to see, well, how much can I do with what I have right in front of me? And then it's cool to see how it's changed and how it's grown and how it's evolved. And like, okay, well, that's in, but I think the same thing can exist in trumpet. It's like, what opportunities do you want on the trumpet? Do you want to play an orchestra? Do you want to have this? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Well, what do you have right in front of you right now? 
that you can do? Well, for everybody, it's doing the very best practice that exists, right? That's what all of us have available to us right now. And then potentially playing for other people who are in positions that are where you may want to be, uh, like in a freelancing scene or obviously be putting yourself out there and taking auditions, not being afraid to do that. You know, this is like, it's just what opportunities, what can you do right now with what you have? And then what does it look like to do the very best you can do? I feel like that's like a mantra I've started to take on. And it's like, there's certainly a lot I have. I feel like the more I learn, the more I don't know kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I hope that this was, I just wanted to share that because it's been something that I think has been really helpful in, for me um, to like feel like I'm, I'm, act, I'm effectively trying to feel like I'm, a part of things moving forward while recognizing I have almost no control over them. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Yeah. So, anyway. I love that, man. I love it. Not having, almost not having to ask for permission to do things, you know, just doing it and going with it and then playing the long game too. Like that's something that I've been really trying to focus in on so much of my childhood and early adulthood. Adulthood has been like in gaming everything and just like, okay, hurry up, get to the next thing versus like, all right, I'm gonna give myself 10 years, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. with this thing and see how it goes. And yeah, it's cool to see like, like what you mentioned, as you apply yourself and do the best that you can with the ability that you have, where it leads you. And it's like this constant, it's like snowball effect and you keep growing and you keep learning. And it's just, it's, it's a healthy place to be in, man. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really cool. I, so I, I appreciate you sharing all that you've shared today. It's been that's what I what I love about these podcasts. It's like, oh, I've never met you before this, but now it's like I can kind of see inside of like your thought process and desires and things. And it's like, man, it's it's really cool. It's really cool to see that. I mean, I'm grateful for the opportunity. You have no idea. It's it's <laughs> I always appreciate the opportunity to think to talk about things that I that I care deeply about. And it is also great to get to know. I mean, I know I did most of the talking, but it's great to get a chance to <laughs> to talk to you and to meet both of you as well. So I really appreciate this opportunity. Oh, well, thank you. Before we, uh, we wrap up, we like to, you know, ask our guests, um, just to kind of change a little oh, yeah. pace. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't do this question. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as a musician, what, what, you know, if we were to open up your, you know, Spotify or Apple music or whatever you, you listen to, what, what will we find on your playlist right now or something that you've been like jamming to recently? I don't know if this is okay to say, but like nothing. Oh yeah. Like I don't have, a, okay. I don't have any, I don't listen to Spotify that often. Um, I feel like my relationship with music is I listen to like things that I listened to in high school. If that, mm -hmm. like I sort of haven't evolved past that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure maybe, maybe this will make sense. I'm not sure. I don't know, but I feel like because my whole life is playing music, I don't listen to music that much, you know? Um, I, I do like other, I'm like busy doing other things, I guess. Um, music is not, sometimes I'll listen to like stuff when I work out, if I'm going to listen to music, I listen, I like, I don't listen to a lot of ska music, but it's got a special place in my heart. Nice. Um, <laughs> there's a band called Bayside. I'm a huge fan of, um, band called Incubus. Uh, there's a, a British, uh, rock band or a British guy named Steven Wilson, part of a band called Porcupine Tree. Listen to that sometimes progressive rock. I enjoy, but uh, typically I'm not really listening to that much music. I know it's kind of lame, but no, no, I get it. I, I I find myself 
recently one of my students like hey what have you been listening to and I was like you know what I haven't really been listening to I mean I've listened to some like podcast stuff here and there but I was like I haven't really been listening to music recently which was I at the moment I didn't even realize I was like man that is kind of <laughs> weird yeah right right yeah what, what have you been listening to anything Tyler yeah so because it's been getting colder and the the days are shorter up there and so I have a little one. He's about to be a year and a half next month. And so nice. there's this window of time from basically like 4.30 till bedtime where like you, you got to be present. You got to be there. And so uh, I end up having to run on the treadmill. The condo that we're renting has mm -hmm. like a gym. So, you know, half the time I decide, do I do no music to work on like mental strength, right? To just like, all right. <laughs> or do I listen to music and just let it go? And so uh, I, I'm the same way. I go in seasons where it's like, I don't listen to anything. And then sometimes I'm like, huh, okay, this is cool. And so I've been listening to, which I guess has been out for like a year. Corey Wong did something with Dirty Loops. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. I listened to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I was yeah. like, I remember I was on the uh, like on the treadmill. I was like freaking out. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. Like how have I not done this? <laughs> um, but yeah, just again yeah i think sometimes my brain needs a break from all that and it needs the quiet time and just the space and so when it's ready to listen again to receive music it's it's there uh but yeah that's kind of what i've been circulating through at the moment and then who knows maybe in a few weeks i won't be listening to anything for like three yeah. months <laughs> i i will say you know recently i listened to uh i don't know if you know stormzy he's a british rapper um i i just listened to i guess one of his new songs he did um with jacob collier well jacob did some of the producing i'm a big fan of jacob collier um and i was like man this is this is awesome <laughs> so but that's like the only thing it just kind of popped up on my my um on my youtube feed so i was like oh jacob collier did a song with stormzy let me listen to that so that's that's basically what i listened to i guess it was like two days ago or three days ago um so if you check that, I, I can't even remember the name of the tune, but if you just look Stormzy and Jacob Collier, I'm sure it'll pop up. Um, so, but yeah, it's sometimes, yeah, it is where we have to kind of give ourselves some some space away from music. Uh, I was talking to a friend about this exact same thing. I was like, I haven't really been listening. He's like, why? You're a musician. Like, why have you? I said, like, I don't know. I just, I think I just need the silence or the space away from it. Um and it's yeah and I didn't even realize it and so that's that's okay I'm I'm glad I'm not alone in that so it's not weird <laughs> yeah I think for me it like a lot of people music is I'm going to listen to it when I work out or like obviously for many musicians it's I'm going to listen to this thing because it inspires me or because I want to learn like an orchestral thing I want to learn style but for a lot of people, it's like a thing they do when they relax. Uh, mm -hmm. For me, instead of listening to music, I watch video game streamers play Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> nice. That's like, if I'm going to kill some time, I'm usually doing that. Nice. <laughs> nice. Nice. That's awesome. I, I usually do that with um with Madden, watch guys play each other in Madden. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for being on the show. We really, really um, enjoy our, our interview. So just so much great information, so very enlightening. Um, I, I hope everyone, please check out uh, Ryan Beach's podcast. Um, it Not Spit is Condensation. 
Uh, and certainly, you know, if you're looking into his book, check out his book, Audition Preparation with the Gold Method. It's on uh, ryanbeachtrumpet.com. Um, I'm, I'm assuming all of your, your Instagrams for your, your podcast is just under the, the name of the podcast. Uh, so please check check it out. Yeah. It's fantastic. He has a lot of clips and a lot of great insight and in, in practicing and uh, audition preparation, all fantastic stuff. Uh, and they can find you at on Instagram, I assume, uh, Ryan Beach Trumpet on Instagram. Yep. Awesome. Great. Um, so thank you all again for listening to this episode. Uh, we hope to be bringing out new episodes in the coming weeks as we come into the, the new year 2023 um and you can certainly please subscribe like us at coffee and clarks on youtube apple music facebook instagram all the places um so thank you all again for listening and we'll see you again next time